At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. As nationwide protests continue over the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, our John Nichols has been speaking with Minnesota's Attorney General Keith Ellison about what is to be done about unending police violence against people of color. But first, Ellie Mistal. In almost all our big cities, we've seen massive protests against racist police violence. All of these cities have liberal Democratic mayors in huge Democratic majorities. And yet, in almost every city, the police response to protests over police violence has been more police violence. For comment, we turn to Ellie Mistal. He's the nation's justice correspondent, and he writes the magazine's monthly column, Objection. He's also an Alfred Nobler Fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC. Ellie Mistal, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Well, when someone is being violent, you call the police. But who do you call when the police are the ones being violent? You take up this question in your new piece at The Nation. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a vexing problem, to say the least. In this moment, when people are protesting brutality, for the police to respond with more brutality is just insane. What we need in this moment, or for the people who are arguably in control of the police, the mayors, the police commissioners, to stand up and tell the police to stand down. And that is kind of the opposite of what's happening right now. What we're seeing is is a lack of local control over the police forces. And it's one of the reasons why um, these protests are sparking so much property destruction, fires and, and violence and whatever. It's a reaction to the posture that the police have taken. Weak civilian control of police power has always been a problem, but that problem, you say, has been accelerated recently. How did that happen? It's, it's part of this long kind of trajectory of the militarization of police. I'm a Generation X guy, right? So if you kind of roll back the clock to 1980, like the police were kind of scary, right? They had like billy clubs and they were like on a moped and like William Shatner was like around, like, like they, they, they had some kind, they had power. But with the militarization that we've seen accelerated really starting in the 90s and kind of zooming ahead from that, we now have true paramilitary forces on our streets. These police are armed with uh, counterinsurgency weaponry. They, they drive around in armored personnel carriers. Um, they're outfitted in, you know, body armor as if they're preparing to go to Fallujah. And it's, and it's an entirely different kind of level of force that they are able to apply to 
the peaceful protests, the slightly rowdy protests, like it doesn't matter. They're, they're able to come over the top in such a way that there is an argument, you know, that violence begets more violence, that that kind of posture is itself an inciting reason for some of the violence. And, I, and, and it's an important context here. People have to understand that Black people who are out here protesting now, who are protesting the death of George Floyd and um, other, you know, instances of police brutality, it's not like we don't have TV. It's not like we didn't just see for the past month and a half white people generally lose their minds over quarantine issues, over being asked to wear a mask, over social distancing, right? And we saw literally armed white people with assault rifles yelling within an inch of the police who were dressed in normal uniforms, who were not armed, who were calm, who did not, you know, uh, shoot tear gas or rubber bullets at these protesters. We saw how they treated white people. And so when you show up to your protest, when you show up in your town and the police are outfitted in riot gear, it it immediately tells you that you are not going to get the same treatment that the white people got, which is why you were out there protesting in the first place, right? So, so it's really, <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> you write at The Nation, most mayors in this country fail to control their police, but Bill de Blasio in New York is unique. Please explain. This guy, this guy. I feel personally betrayed by Bill de Blasio. I know it's weird to, to, to personalize him in that way, but it is how I feel. Because this man explicitly, after Mike Bloomberg, who was the mayor of New York City for three terms, um, had really awful policing policies, um, instituted a stop and frisk pro- program uh, that was eventually deemed unconstitutional. Mike Bloomberg, three terms, coming on the heels of Rudolph Giuliani for two terms, who was one of the most aggressive pro-police mayors in the history of the country to come off of five consecutive terms of over-policing. Bill de Blasio comes out here in his campaign for mayor and explicitly promises that he will not be like like Bloomberg, like Giuliani. Explicitly promises that he will rein in the police. Um, Bill de Blasio happens to be married to a black woman, so black woman, so his children um, are dark skinned. His children are black. Bill de Blasio used his black son in campaign ads to emphasize the point that he understood what racial profiling and stop and frisk and over policing did to black lives. For him to go from there to a guy who, during the protests last weekend, tried to excuse the cops who ran their cars into crowds of unarmed people. The delta from what he said he'd be to what he is, is, is horrifying. It's, and again, I, I take it personally. I, I view it as a personal betrayal of what he promised to be. For de Blasio, the turning point seems to have come when he appeared at that funeral for a New York City cop who had been shot and killed, and the cops in the audience turned their backs on him. That was 2014. Why was that so traumatic for him? I don't know. It was. (laughs) I think we clearly see that his posture towards the police changed significantly after they disrespected him. Why that kind of hurt him so 
um, is beyond me. Like, what did he think was going to happen? If you, you, I mean, I mean, it's kind of a meta argument, but like, if the police like you, if you're a mayor of a big city and the police like you, that probably means you're doing something wrong. That probably means that you aren't doing enough to control their excesses. So I don't, I don't see how he could have possibly thought that he could campaign as being a reformer of the police, actually make police reforms and have them like him. So I don't see why he was surprised, right? But it clearly, I mean, John, you're so right. It clearly was a moment where his entire kind of posture um, changed. And I would say uh, significantly for the worse. You know, there's, there's massive popular support in America for prosecuting killer cops like the one who murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis. I just saw a YouGov uh, poll of uh, 5,600 people shortly before Minnesota officials announced that that cop, Derek Chauvin, had been arrested. This survey found that almost four in five Americans believed he should be arrested, and that included 68% of Republicans. But there's one huge powerful political force on the other side, and that, of course, is the police unions. The political power of the police unions is really our our biggest problem uh, here, and that, that power has to be broken, it seems to me. Uh, right now, it's against the law in a lot of places, including California, for us to find out the names of the cops who have been disciplined by their own departments for misconduct. Uh, those laws are are enforced because the police unions lobbied for them. So it seems to me police unions should be limited to advocating for pay and benefits and working conditions like like other people's unions. Yeah, it's look, it's a it's it's always a difficult conversation about the police unions um, for me because I'm a liberal, which means I like unions. I think they're good. <laughs> I think we should have stronger ones, right? Um, and obviously the police union is is kind of a an outlier in terms of a union that has maintained its power and grown in power over time. And the way that I kind of look at it is that instead of worrying too much about what the police union does, which I think, I mean, they do terrible things and they advocate for policies that I strongly disagree with and I think hurt American citizens, especially black and brown American citizens. But instead of kind of focusing on, on what they do, I tend to focus on why they are so powerful. And the reason why they are so powerful is because people, predominantly white people, listen to them and vote the way that they tell, that the police unions kind of want them to. Like, they would not be politically powerful if they didn't bring with them a whole lot of votes. And the votes that they bring with them are not just from cops. It's from, you know, average citizens who feel like being aligned with the police is the right thing to do for the safety in their community, for law and order, for all these kinds of things. So part of what I try to do is to advocate and educate people for why they shouldn't vote for the candidate who has the support of the police union. At least on the left and the, and the, and the center left, the police union endorsement should be viewed as, with as much toxicity as like an NRA endorsement, right? You wouldn't see a center-left person vote for a guy because they got a perfect rating from the NRA. Why would you vote for a guy that gets a perfect rating from the police union because, it's, because they're advocating for the same kind of violence on our streets? And we also need to talk about the city budgets. Um, in L.A., where we record our show, the police get 
something like 53% of the total city budget. I imagine it's the same in New York City and other places. And now with the coronavirus economic crisis, there are going to be massive budget cuts in all our big cities. What's going to happen to the police budgets now? You know, in the same way that Republicans in federal government like never cut def- defense spending, how the defense spending is this kind of you know sacred cow that can never be the fat which can never be trimmed. City governments do the same thing with police budgets, and it, and it's largely because of police unions. It's largely because of that connection that we just and again, as you pointed out, I think earlier in mostly liberal cities, mostly Democratic mayors, they still are afraid of angering the police union so they leave that budget sacrosanct um but it is cutting the budget that is our to me our our clearest our most direct way to reform talking about the militarization of police like where do you think they get the money to buy armored personnel carriers and riot gear and body armor that's from the city budget that's my tax dollars that goes to funding the weapons that will be used against me if I peacefully protest. It it is those budgets that need to be attacked. And politicians, people have to vote for politicians who promise to attack those budgets. That's that's one of the big, my big takeaways from all of this that we're seeing over the past week and a half. We have to stop electing politicians who promise to control the police because that clearly doesn't happen. We have to start electing politicians who promise to disarm the police. That's a whole different kind of campaign. I've heard that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or the rights of the people to peaceably assemble to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Is this true? Yeah, I think you missed the part where it said white people to peaceably assemble. <laughs> because I don't think that that I doesn't appear that that law applies to anybody else. Look, I, I don't I don't know where I don't know where the government and this comes directly from President Trump. I don't know why we've decided that it is okay for National Guardsmen, police officers, or what have you to tear gas peaceful protesters. I don't know where they've decided that it's okay to shoot rubber bullets at members of the press. I mean, in some cities, it looks like members of the press are being targeted. I don't know why. I mean, if you're a cop and you see a person holding a news camera, I don't know why you shoot at that person. I don't know how you think that helps you. Obviously, what Republicans have wrought in this country is a sense of freedom for me, but not for thee. And I don't, I kind of don't know how we got here, and I don't exactly know how to stop it, but it is where we are. Ellie Mistal, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Ellie. John, thank you so much. Stay safe out there. Now we turn to the events in Minneapolis and to John Nichols. He spoke over the weekend with Keith Ellison, the Attorney General of Minnesota. Ellison has a deep knowledge of the neighborhood where George Floyd was killed. Ellison represented that district in Congress, and of course he was went on to be co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Keith Ellison will be heading the prosecution of the killer cop, Derek Chauvin, who's been charged with murder. John Nichols, welcome back. I am glad to be with you, John. I was going to say it was a pleasure, but I'm sh- I'm afraid these times uh, have undermined the use of that word. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. 
Well, the police are supposed to represent us and work for us. But in his interview with you, Keith Ellison points out that the police have always been in place to maintain the legal and social order. And he makes a powerful argument about that. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, I've covered Keith Ellison for a long time. And and I'll tell you, on Friday, as so much of the attention began to focus on uh, Minneapolis and, and what was happening in Minnesota in general, I reached out to him. Uh, not, and I wouldn't have been surprised, even though I have known him and covered him a lot over the years, wouldn't have been surprised if he said, I'm just too busy. But instead, he said, no, you know, I'd, I, I would really like to carve out some time to talk about this because I think this has to be put in perspective. And so we talked a couple times on Friday, and then we arranged to have a long conversation very early on on Saturday morning. And this is where he went to. He he said, you know, look, you have to understand that if you have a just social order and the the police are supporting and sustaining that order, that's one thing. But if you have a social order uh, that goes back in its roots to slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, discrimination, he ran through this list. He says, that's another thing altogether. And then he mentioned that, of course, he grew up in Michigan in the Detroit area. He said, look, you know, there was a great consciousness there that the the police um, often were not on the side of organized labor, that they there you had a case where they were defending an economic order. Understanding how how deeply rooted this, this crisis, this challenge is. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about police brutality in the I Have a Dream speech and also in many of his speeches and writings that Malcolm X spoke about police brutality, that um, the NAACP and other groups, um, not in recent years, but generationally have been talking about police brutality. Um, now we have a, a rising generation of activists with Black Lives Matter and, and other groupings talking about police brutality. And he he made that point that. You know, we've got a challenge in this country, a fundamental challenge that has gone unaddressed for too long. We think of Minneapolis as a deep blue progressive stronghold. It elected the first Muslim to Congress, Keith Ellison. Now it's represented by Ilhan Omar, one of the first two Muslim immigrant women in Congress. Uh, When Trump came to town not too long ago, the liberal mayor snubbed him, refused to welcome him to the city. But the police in Minneapolis are not part of any of this. The police chief is a progressive black man, but the real power is the police union and its president. And they gave Trump a hero's welcome when he came to Minneapolis. And the president of the police union appeared with Trump on stage wearing a T-shirt that said cops for Trump. Keith Ellison, of course, knows all about the problem of police unions and especially the police union in Minneapolis, the way they protect violent racist cops. What did he say to you about it? He was very blunt about it. He did talk about the political realities of it. He also talked about the notion that that while the chief has significant powers, the head of the union becomes almost an alternative chief, uh, someone with a whole host of powers and Remember that Keith Ellison is a, a militantly, passionately pro-labor uh, member of Congress and attorney general. So he's not against unions. But what he said is, you know, look, if you're negotiating for wages and benefits and for basic protections, basic safety, yeah, yeah, that's that's what a union does. But 
in the case of these police federations, particularly the one in Minneapolis, he suggested that you, know, you really create a situation where there is a protection for bad cops. And that's hugely problematic, not merely because a bad cop might stay on the force, but also because good cops feel like there's very few avenues to speak up. Because if you say, hey, I, I'm really concerned about this this other officer, instead of having immediate action taken and when the evidence is presented, have it dealt with, you end up in a situation where nothing happens. And, and as Keith Ellison said, that creates a situation where even good cops tend to be absorbed into a bad system. And on another topic, Keith Ellison told you that provocateurs had been, quote, trying to tarnish the reputation of the noble protest for justice, close quote. Uh, there were a lot of reports in the Twin Cities media over the weekend about white nationalist uh, groups urging supporters to converge on Minneapolis for what they call boogaloo, their code word for race war. That's one reason why the city closed all the big highways coming into Minneapolis on Saturday night. I know you talked with Keith Ellison more about this. Yeah, we talked a lot about his concern. Uh, and and I want to emphasize not just his concern. This is something that uh, a number of officials in Minneapolis and in Minnesota have talked about, uh, that you have a, a, a protest movement here that's very large and very passionate. And that is seeking to deliver a message about police brutality and uh, more generally about a need to, to change police in this country. To Keith Ellison's view, there, there also seem to be uh, situations where violence broke out, but it did not seem to have been rooted in the, the movement. It didn't seem to be rooted in the people that were out there saying we want to address police brutality. It looked to, to many observers, like there were folks um, who showed up out of the blue and um, broke a window or, you know, did something else. And he described a couple of circumstances that were a particular concern to him. And he talked about some of this at a press conference as well. He has said, as the attorney general, if you've got information, uh, get it to me. I want to know. I want to know if there are if there are people here who are trying to provoke violence or to, to do damage because they want to undermine or shame or, or target uh, these movements. So this, this whole broader question that you're bringing up here is one that, boy, I want to tell you, in Minneapolis right now, it is a big, big topic. And it is one that is brought up regularly at press conferences involving the governor and, and other officials, the mayor, much discussed in the press. Um, I would bring it back to Ellison and say, as the state's chief law enforcement officer, and that's what the attorney general is, he was expressing real concern about the prospect that there might be provocateurs and that they, uh, and if there are, that that needs to be addressed. Yeah, well, some of the, some of the targets of arson at issue here, there was a, a, a public library off Lake Street, a post office, two community bookstores, one community art center. Doesn't seem like Black Lives Matter would be targeting these places. Look, you don't always know what happens right. um, in difficult circumstances. And about what I would suggest to you is that having been out and covered a number of these demonstrations, I have seen Black Lives Matter activists being really focused 
on getting the message out, right? Yeah. Making sure yeah. that the message is delivered and that there and that the discussion doesn't get distracted from it. And this is one of the big problems in this country. You and I have talked a lot about media. And, you know, one of the great challenges in the United States is that, boy, our media system uh, is really, really good at covering a fire. Um, it is not so good at covering a social media, social movement. And um, and so I've seen too many situations in recent days where there were mass marches, mass mobilizations, thousands of people out peacefully protesting against police brutality. And that ends up as a, a side story or the last two paragraphs in the story, which focuses on a fire or on, you know, uh, damage to a building. And and I understand yeah. you cover the whole story. You should cover the whole story. But there has to be some perspective here. And some of that perspective has to take us to the reality that there are mass peaceful mobilizations around a fundamental issue. You talked about the media focusing on the uh, looting and the fires more than on the huge protest marches and on what's being argued for there. In the past, images like these have led to white backlash voting. A year after Watts, for example, California elected Ronald Reagan governor. In 1967, there were huge uh, riots in uh in Newark and in Detroit, and after the year after that, Nixon was elected president. And, of course, law and order has always been a Republican rallying cry, and Trump, in, just in the last couple of days, has been trying very hard to play that same card. I know you talked with Keith Ellison about what he thought Joe Biden should be saying in response to the law and order themes of the Republicans and Trump's talk about shooting looters. Yeah, look, what Keith Ellison said, and I'll, I'll begin with what he said, and I'll expand from it just a little bit. Yeah, please. Uh, what he said is that, that Joe Biden has to talk about these things and that every Democratic candidate for the House, the Senate, for state and local offices has to be talking about this. And and he was very specific about what they have to say. They do have to talk about you know how to really transform policing in this country and to make it work uh, in a much more – humane uh, and functional way. He talked about the idea of moving away from a warrior mentality toward a guardian mentality, toward a, a more of a protect and serve mentality for all people. And um, and and he was hopeful in that regard. Uh, and, and I think for good reason. And this is where I'll offer my additional thought. One of the biggest mistakes that is made in covering politics is to assume that politics always repeat. They don't always repeat. There was never a Franklin Roosevelt until there was a Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, there was never a Barack Obama until there was a Barack Obama. Um, you were right that you had backlash in the 1960s in the cities you mentioned, L.A., Detroit, and Newark. Uh, but you should also note that in relatively short order, those cities elected African-American mayors. Um and of course, that relates to white flight and some some other issues. I understand the the whole of the political dynamic, but one of the things that that I think is a mistake is to assume that Donald Trump is Richard Nixon, that he can be Richard Nixon today. And I think that society does change. I don't know how much it changes, and I understand and respect the fears about backlash voting, but. What I will suggest to you is 
that there is a rising generation of young people uh, who are absolutely committed to economic and social and racial justice and who really put an exclamation mark on on racial justice, who really are passionately concerned about police brutality. And so the job of the Democrats is not to kind of go soft and try and you know talk around these issues, which is the mistake that Democrats made in the past. It is to, to go right into it and to have that discussion and to explain, A, why we have to change, right, and B, um, how much better off we all will be if we address police brutality and, and the challenge, the broader challenges with policing, that society will be better off. And if you make that argument in detail, aggressively, intelligently, I think you, you can uh, avoid or at least deal with a lot of the backlash um, and, in fact, mobilize uh, a, a much higher turnout of people who who want to see the change. So, uh, you know, I believe me, I, the, 2020 is is the year where we prove uh, the old theory that the future is unwritten. Right. Everything about this year is uh, unstable and uncertain. But we know what Donald Trump is going to do in this year. We know that he will seek to exploit these issues. We know that he will seek to divide people um, as part of his reelection effort. He will do so in the ugliest and most brutal of ways. And so the question is, do the Democrats raise uh, uh, an alternative message? Do they, do they put a North Star out there and say, hey, you know, look, we're heading in a very different direction. And what we propose is, you know, a future where we address these issues and where we begin to bring society together not through force and not through, um, you know, yelling about law and order, but but through, you know, a real pursuit, a shared pursuit of justice. And um, I don't think I'm naive about this. I, I think there really is an opening to get this right. But there is also the great danger because, un- unfortunately, uh, Joe Biden comes from an era when there was tremendous fear of backlash voting. So what you're going to have to do is pull him away from that and toward, you know, a deeper, more historic democratic message that you have nothing to fear but fear itself. And to say that the Democrats this year ought to be talking about these issues. They ought to be talking about a new vision and a new direction. They ought to listen to people like Keith Ellison. And I think they can get places that are that are better for them politically and that I know are better for society. John Nichols spoke with Keith Ellison, Minnesota's Attorney General, about the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the larger issues of social justice around it. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled, progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com 
backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.